So the Bible, this book, is a book of many scenes and many different terrains. There are a lot of different places that make you feel differently contained within these pages. And so you have passages like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. And when you read passages like those, it honestly, it feels like you're living in the Shire. It's warm, it's soft, it's cozy, it's encouraging, everyone's happy, everyone's full, because there's always enough food on the table. It's one of those encouraging passages. But when we started our series in John, we said that something that was really important for us was to preach consecutively through entire books of the Bible and to do our best not to skip over any passages. And the reason that we do our best not to skip over any passages is that because not all passages are like Psalm 23. Not all of them are easy and encouraging. Some of them are difficult. Some of them challenge us. And it confronts us with the different scenes and the different terrains and the different attributes and the characteristics of God. And last week, we dealt with one of those difficult terrains, one of those difficult passages. As he was leading us in worship last week, Aaron read from Ephesians 1. And in verse 3, he said, Blessed be the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us through Christ with every spiritual blessing. Which that sounds like Psalm 23. I think everyone can be encouraged by every spiritual blessing. But then in verse 4, we read that the expression of that blessing is that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That in love, he predestined us in order to believe for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And the tone changed a little bit. That seemed a little more challenging. And last week in John chapter 6, a little earlier than what we just read from in verse 44, we read that no one can come to me, that being Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. In verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And so, simply put, last week we dealt with the difficult doctrine of election. The doctrine as revealed in the scriptures that God sovereignly and graciously elects some to eternal life and that left to our own, we are dead in our sins and trespasses and that on our own, we could never choose God. It is only by Him giving us grace and bringing us alive. It's only by His power we add nothing. It is by His electing sovereign grace that we can believe. And it's a hard teaching. And I'm sure that for many of you, if this was your first week here or maybe your first time reading John 6, it felt like you were being ripped out of your warm, cozy bed in the Shire and just thrust up into the middle of the Himalayan mountains. And it felt cold, and for as far as your eyes could see, it was just snow and harsh rock 
and dizzying heights that scared you if you fell off of them. I'm sure a lot of us had our spiritual systems shot last week. And so for this week, this sermon, of course it's for everybody, but I think it's specifically aimed at the person who walked away with their head spinning. To the person who was trying to come to grips with what Jesus was saying about the the sovereign electing grace of the Father and the implications that that has. And so from the outset, I want to say to the person who has maybe been in spiritual turmoil or theological knots since last week, you have plenty of company. In the passage that Aaron read for us today in verse 60, many of the disciples said, this is a hard saying who can accept it? And so we are going to be dealing with some difficult passages. And if you feel confronted, if you feel like you can't wrap your mind around it, even if you don't like it, you're probably reading it right. And you're probably on the right track. And so this sermon is for you. And to that end, let me pray for us one more time. Lord, we come before you needy and weak and hungry and thirsty and desperate for you. We know that in and of ourselves, we are nothing. And so we ask that you would feed us by your word, nourish us by your word. Let us behold all of the glories of Christ and by your spirit be transformed more into his image. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So last week, Mark introduced the whole chapter of Mark 6 as like the Louvre Museum. And if you go to the Louvre Museum, you could spend weeks just stopping and staring at each individual masterpiece for 30 seconds. I think he said if you were to stop for 30 seconds at every single piece of art, It would take you like 37 days in order to get through the whole museum. It's just incredible. Likewise, John 6, we probably could have taken six weeks in order to just gaze at each individual masterpiece. But because of time constraints, we kind of had to do a quick run through. And so last week, Mark did most of the heavy legwork. He got through 51 verses in one sermon, so he probably deserves some sort of medal for being able to do that. So kudos to him. Uh, so me, this week, this is like part two, uh, finishing John 6. I'm batting cleanup. I'm taking us through the last two rooms in the Louvre and the last two paragraphs in this chapter, what Aaron read for us, 52 to 71. And so last week we got dropped into the middle of the Himalayan mountains. And it shocked us. And Jesus, throughout John 6, is continuously carrying us up this mountain by saying increasingly offensive things. Last week, he told his Jewish audience that I am greater than Moses, which to the Jews, like Moses was their guy. He was their spiritual hero for him to say that, for Jesus to say that he was greater than Moses, that was like to slap a Jew in the face. And then he just took it one step further and said that no one can come to me 
unless the Father draws him, unless the Father drags him, unless the Father changes your heart and gives you a new desire, unless the Father does that work, you can't come to me. Which to his hearers then and to everyone who's ever heard that in and of yourself you're not good enough to help save yourself, it's all the work of God, that offends everybody. And then we pick up in our passage for today, and Jesus just keeps going. He just swings for the fences in verse 52. Read with me. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. You can't get much more offensive than saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. One, because on the surface it kind of sounds like cannibalism. And even more so, Jesus was saying this to Jewish people. And according to Jewish law, they wouldn't even eat an animal who still had its blood left in it, much less drink the blood of an animal, much less drink the blood of a human. So Jesus is just going completely over the top here. He, he, he is pushing the limits of human acceptability when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Just as, as he has been throughout this entire gospel, he is intentionally offending in order to teach us something. And so two questions about these strange, offensive verses. One, what do they mean? And two, why did Jesus have to put it so graphically? Why be that offensive? So the first question is easier to answer. What do these verses mean? When Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so the Catholic Church, um, just from getting to know some of you, I know that several of you are coming from a Catholic background. The Catholic Church teaches that when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, they apply that to communion. And they think that when the bread and the wine is blessed, that physically and molecularly, that it is transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus, that you are literally taking that in. And, it's ver and if verse 54 is all that we had, I, I could kind of see that argument, but... Given the rest of this passage and other verses that are, I think, a little more clear, I think some of those other verses that are clear help us to interpret some of these less clear verses. And so I want us to notice some things that Jesus has already said that will help us uh, rightly determine what verse 54 means. And so verse 54 says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. And then just look a little further up or further back. I don't know where, where it would be in your Bible at verse 40, where Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, do you see the similarities between those two? Whoever feeds on my flesh has eternal life, verse 54. And whoever believes in me has eternal life, verse 40. And each will be raised up on the last day. Verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So is Jesus teaching this Catholic doctrine that when you take the bread and the wine that you are literally eating his own flesh and blood? I, I don't think so. I think given the previous verses and the similarities between them, that connection between eating and believing, I think Jesus is simply restating what he's already said. He's only doing it in more graphic terms. He's saying, I am the bread of life. Look to me. Believe in me. Be nourished by me. I am the only one that can satisfy your hunger. I am the only one that can quench your thirst. I am the only one that can give you any ultimate satisfaction in this life. So look to me by faith and believe. And you will have eternal life and you will be raised up on the last day. And so after this service, when you go home and you eat lunch or when you go out to a restaurant, you'll eat physical food and it'll hold you over for a few hours. But I'm guessing that most of you are probably going to eat dinner. You're probably going to eat again. Physical food can only hold you over for so long. Jesus is saying that he is true spiritual food and that if you feed on his flesh and drink his blood by faith, if you believe in him, then your soul will be nourished and fulfilled for all of eternity. In the words of St. Augustine, believe and you have eaten already. So that's question one. What does it mean? Which leads me to question two. If Jesus is simply saying what he's already said, why say it so graphically? Why say it so offensively? I mean, you, you got your point across, like, look and believe. Like, that was pretty clear. Why say, eat my flesh and drink my blood? And this is my best guess. I've spent hours this week wrestling over this one. It's just had me in knots. This is my best guess. But I think that Jesus and John, as he writes his own gospel account, I think they are trying to prepare us for the cross. And throughout this book, Jesus and John are using sacrificial, human, and bloody language. And I think it is meant to point us, to prepare us for the work that Jesus would eventually do in going to the cross. And so I'm going to uh, skim over some of the, the verses that we've already um, studied and preached through. And so just listen and try and pick up on this sacrificial language to kind of see what Jesus is getting at here. So the, the way John opens his gospel, John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. God. And then chapter 1, verse 14, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Christ, the second person of the Trinity, without losing any of his godness or his divinity, clothed himself 
in humanness. He, he put on bones and put on flesh and had hair and he had eyes. The eternal word became flesh and became like us in our physical fleshliness. And then in chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees this incarnate word made flesh. He sees him walking by and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Lamb of God has just heavily sacrificial overtones. Move to chapter 3, verse 14. We read about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness and the Israelites, when they look to it, they will be healed. We read that just like Moses lifted up the serpent, that Jesus will be lifted up on the cross and that those who look to him in faith, that they will be healed. Then we get to verse 51 of John 6, where Mark ended last week and Jesus says, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then in verse 61, the disciples were grumbling because of how offensive Jesus' language was. And Jesus says, you take offense at this? I'll show you offensive. And in verse 62, he ups the offensive ante. And he says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And so it was the plan and the will of the Father for the Son, the incarnate Word made flesh, to eventually return to heaven to be with his Father where he was before. But in order for him to get there, in order for him to fulfill God's plan and God's will, he had to go through the cross. He had to go to the place where the flesh would be torn from his back. He had to go to the place where his blood would be poured freely. He had to go to the place where his beard would be ripped from his face and where his cheeks would be slapped and where his side would be pierced with a sword. So Jesus is saying, you think what I've said before is offensive? Wait until I'm stripped naked, hung on a cross. My flesh is being torn apart. My blood is spilling freely. And I am going to say to you, behold, I am your God. I am your salvation. Behold, this is your crucified Messiah. Look and believe and feed on me. Because I am the most satisfying meal in all of human history. Everything else will leave you wanting more, but if you look to me in faith as the crucified Savior who went in your place, then you will receive eternal life. So I think why Jesus is using such offensive language here is he is preparing us for the cross, the greatest offense in human history. And humanly speaking, the cross makes absolutely no sense. From a worldly perspective, it looks like Jesus, when he went to the cross and died, that he was an absolute failure. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. For it is the power and wisdom of God. So Christ crucified, where his flesh is torn and his blood is spilt, that is our God. That is our Messiah, Christ and him crucified. And when we look to him in faith and believe in him and feed on him spiritually, that is when we receive eternal life. And we know that we will be raised on the last day. So that's the overall teaching of John 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. It is only by looking to me in faith and feeding on my flesh and drinking my blood and finding nourishment in me that you will be satisfied. And then you have the other half that says, you're only going to be able to do that if the Father elects you to do so. That's the teaching. What's the response? Pick up with me in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So in the passage that began with the feeding of the 5,000, that was just 5,000 men, so including women and children, it was probably somewhere between fifteen to 20,000. In a passage that began with thousands, after Jesus gave his teaching, which was hard to hear, all that remained was 12. Okay, I, I want us to think about that. What began with five or 15,000 was eventually whittled down to 12. The, the room this week seems a little emptier than last week, which makes me think that Mark preached it right. Jesus is not interested in crowds. He is looking for serious disciples. People who accept all of his words and are willing to follow him to the cross, who are willing to lay down their lives for their Savior. And so after 4,988 had walked away, you would think that Jesus would go easy on the 12 who stayed. But he doesn't. He doesn't let up the intensity. He turns to them and he asks them a very challenging question. He says, do you want to go away as well? It's a question that he asked to them. And I think it's a question he's asking us today. It's a question that he is asking you. Do you want to go away? Do you want to walk away in the light of the things that I've said? And so Peter, of course, always being the first to speak, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? And I, I want to stop right there. Because when Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? That seems to suggest that he had considered the other options. That he had heard Jesus' teaching, and he recognized that it was hard. And he considered being one of the 4,988 who walked away. And just as a personal testimony, I've had that moment. I've had that moment where I've been confronted with the God and the Jesus of the Bible 
and I hated him. And I wanted to walk away. And I considered the options. I was a sophomore in college. This would be six or seven years ago. And like a lot of kids who grew up in a strong Christian home and they kind of get out of the nest and are thrown into pagan Tuscaloosa, University of Alabama, I was having a, a spiritual crisis. And I was wondering, am I just living off the faith of my parents? Am I just believing because it's the culturally acceptable thing to do? Like, do, do I believe any of this? And so I started to read the Bible for myself, and I started reading some of what I've been describing as those, those Himalayan texts. Texts like John 6 or Ephesians 1 and 2 or Romans 8 and 9, and my head was spinning. I, I said, okay, so if, if God is sovereign, then what about missions? If God is sovereign, then why pray? If God is sovereign over everything and has everything planned out and is meticulously governing, governing the world, then am I just a robot or a puppet who's being pulled by some strings? And so, and so I, I wrestled with it, and, and I, I said, no, that, that can't be it. And so I thought, okay, maybe I can go to a God who isn't sovereign. Maybe I can go to a God who's powerful, who created us, and who has a will and a desire for our lives and for human history and for the world, but maybe he just has hopes that we'll make the right decision. Maybe the end of human history is open based on our choices. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that if God isn't sovereign over everything, then something is outside of his control. And that, that something, because it's outside of God's control, would be more powerful than God. And so that thing that is outside of God's control control that would be God and I just I, I couldn't make it work what what started as me viewing God's sovereignty as something to be scared of the more I thought about it the more I realized that if God wasn't sovereign that was a scarier option if he wasn't in control of everything if he was just a watchmaker who just let us go and let chaos reign. If chaos is God, I won't be able to sleep at night. And so over time, as I wrestled with these texts, I, I came to cherish the fact that sovereignly God knows the number of hairs on my head. I came to love that the fact that he upholds the universe by the word of his power and that in galaxies, far, far away that we don't even know about, that in every square inch of them, he is reigning and he is ruling. There's not an inch of the universe that is outside of his domain. And I even had to come to grips that God was sovereign even over my own salvation. And when I read Ephesians 2, that I was dead 
in my sins and trespasses, following after the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the children of disobedience. Do you want to know what dead people do? Nothing. They're dead. They don't work. They don't help. They don't say, God, I just need a little divine spark. You let's meet 50-50. I was dead, and in my sinful nature, I never would have chosen Christ. And so I came to love and embrace the electing, sovereign grace of God that made me alive to change my heart, to change my nature, so that I could see and savor Christ for who He is. So I tried to go to a God that wasn't sovereign over everything, and I looked at that and I said, no. I can't go there. Well, if I can't go there, maybe I can go to a God who doesn't say hard things like eat my flesh and drink my blood. Maybe I can go to a God who doesn't make demands on my life. Maybe I can go to a God that just fits my own personal comforts and desires. And so I sought satisfaction in everything else. I turned to pornography, hoping that I would find intimacy there. I turned to alcohol, hoping that that would be able to numb the pain that I felt. I even turned to good things like friends or family or my jobs, and I said, you will be my God, friends, family, job, and I will serve you totally in hopes that you will give me satisfaction. I read an article this week by a well-noted atheist, David Foster Wallace, and he gave, it's actually a graduation speech, not an article, um, and in it, he wasn't writing from a Christian or even a religious perspective, but in his speech, he noticed that all human beings are worshipers. We're all desiring fulfillment, and we're all seeking it from somewhere. The only problem is nothing exists that can hold the weight of our desire. We can't worship anything without being consumed by it and eventually destroyed. And so he writes, if you worship money and things, if you're materialistic, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over those to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so on. And so I tried everything, both good and bad, that this world has to offer. I tried to go to a God that didn't make exclusive claims, that didn't demand that I feed and believe on Him and find my nourishment on Him. And I tried to worship that God, but I couldn't. I came up empty. And again, I came back 
to the God and the Jesus of this book. But there was one last alternative that I considered. If I can't go to a God who is sovereign, and if I can't go to a God that I make in my own image, then maybe I just won't have a God at all. Maybe I'll choose atheism. Maybe there is no God, and maybe there is no purpose. Maybe I'm just a random collection of molecules that happen to currently be arranged in the form of a human. Maybe all of you currently sitting in front of me are just random cosmological accidents. And if there is no God, and if there is no purpose, if there is no meaning, if we're just here and this life is ultimately empty like we all find out, and then after death is nothing, maybe that can be my God. Paul, the apostle, actually dealt with this question in 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, he said, if the dead are not raised, a.k.a. if there is no God, if there is no purpose, if there is no meaning in this life, if it is not leading towards something after death, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I had a professor in seminary whose name was Dr. Divine, and yes, a professor of divinity's name was Dr. Divine. <laughs> Don't worry, he reminded us at least twice a week. Um, Dr. Divine, when he was a teenager, used a lot of drugs, and he would reflect on that time and his experience as a Christian now and his faith, and he would paraphrase Paul, and he would say, if the resurrection isn't real then line up the cocaine. A.K.A., if the resurrection isn't real, if the dead are not raised, if God does not exist, if there is no purpose, then all of us might as well walk right out the door, get as drunk as we can, sleep with as many people as we can, and do as much cocaine as we can. We might as well try and seek every ounce of pleasure out of this world because it's the only chance that we've got. Because after we die, there's nothing. And to an atheist who believes that this life is meaningless and that death is nothing, they will eventually, like all of us, when they try everything this world has to offer, they'll find that they're less satisfied than when they started. And if you are a true and true atheist, once you reach that point, then some options, some very scary options that might go for nothingness and painlessness over the emptiness and suffering that this world has to offer, those options become very tempting. So I considered walking away. I considered all those options. And I remember lying in a bed as a sophomore in my college dorm room thinking of what it would mean to go home to my Christian family who'd raised me in the church and to tell them that their son had left the faith. I remember considering going to my friends, most of whom I had made at church, and if I told them that I had walked away from Jesus, I, you know, maybe they would have pursued me, but in my mind, I would have lost them. I would have lost everything 
had I walked away. And so I turn to each of these other gods that wasn't the God of this book. But every time that I did, I said, no, I can't go there. That's not a God that I can worship. That's not a God at all. And so I was in that place for about six months during college. And here at RP, we want to be a church where it is okay to not be okay. And so if you are struggling with the teachings of Jesus here, of election, or his exclusive claims that only he can satisfy you, just let me say that as a pastor that I've asked those questions too. I currently ask those questions. Have I come to accept and believe that God is sovereign in in election and graciously bringing me in from death to life? Yes. And are there texts that show how man's sovereignty and or God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together? They help. Can I explain it to you through and through perfectly? No. But I see them both to be true in the Bible. Are there days where I'm tempted to find nourishment and satisfaction and fulfillment and worth in places outside of Christ? You bet. I look to my marriage, or I look to my latest sermon, or I look to my physique, which honestly isn't that impressive, but I look to all of these things and I come up wanting more. And even as a pastor, are there days where I doubt the goodness, the kindness, and on the really dark days, even the existence of God. Yes. But what keeps bringing me back? What brought me back from those dark days of struggling when I was in college? Read the rest of Peter's answer with me. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? He considered the options and found them lacking. And so he came back and he said, For you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So why did Peter not walk away? Why did I not walk away? Why am I pleading for you to not walk away? It's because only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Yes, some of his words are hard. And yes, some of his words will keep you up at night trying to reconcile them together. But the words of anyone else are empty and they are false. And the words of anyone else will lead you eventually into bondage and death. It is only the words of Jesus that have eternal life and can satisfy So to the person that is hearing these things from Jesus, the the hard teaching of election and the exclusivity, I want to say a few things. One, it is okay to struggle. If you don't struggle with these things, thank God for that. That is a gift. But to someone who's been there, I know I suspect that some of you are there now, maybe started that journey last week. It is a hard place 
to be. And so we want RP to be a church where it is okay to struggle. Even the disciples, even the ones who stayed, they were part of the ones that said this is a hard saying who can accept it. So if you find this hard to swallow, you are not alone. And it's okay. Take your time. Which leads me to my second thing. If you are struggling, we don't want you to struggle alone. We want to be a church that can come alongside of you and guide you through this. So when I was in college during those six months, when I was thrust up into the Himalayas, I didn't have anyone that I felt like I could confide in to ask questions. And being on the top of a very high, cold, hard mountain, at least that's what it looked like to me at the time, it's a very scary place to be. I don't recommend making that journey alone. And it is only by the grace of God that I got through that period with any semblance of balance and grace and arrived at my current theological convictions. And so that now I can go to the top of the Himalayas and instead of being terrified of falling over, knowing that Christ is holding me fast, I can look back and say, this is awesome. God is beautiful. He is powerful. He is sovereign. He is magnificent. And I can appreciate him for who he is. But it would have been a lot easier if I had somebody to help get me there. And so if you are struggling, please feel free to come to me or my wife. Come to one of our elders, Mark or Brad, and go to one of their wives. We would love to be able to struggle through these hard questions and the implications of Jesus' teaching with you. We want to walk through all the different terrains of the Bible and learn all the different characteristics and attributes of God together. Number three. To the person who is struggling, remember what kept Peter from walking away. He considered it. He looked at all the other options, but he said, I I can't go there. Because only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And so if you are wrestling with this book, if you are struggling with this book, don't let go. Keep wrestling, keep struggling, keep asking questions, and the Lord will see you through it. And rely on what you already know about God. Rest on the relationship that you already have with Him. Remember His goodness, His kindness, His love, His faithfulness. Rest on those things and allow the Holy Spirit to continue to lead you into all truth. So usually the Bible is the only book I bring up here, and rightly so. This book is the book that got me through those dark days in college, and it is volumes one of two of a 10-volume set of Charles Spurgeon sermons. Uh, If you want to borrow them, you can't. Um, You can go buy them. If my house is burning down, assuming Lauren's okay, I figure my dog has legs, he can move, I'm grabbing this first. And so I was wrestling with some of these difficult 
texts alone. And Spurgeon was preaching on a difficult doctrine. And he said this in his introduction. I'm going to say it is our conclusion. He said, when you come across a hard doctrine, lay aside your prejudices. Listen calmly. Listen dispassionately. Hear what Scripture says, and when you receive the truth, if God should be pleased to reveal and manifest it to your souls, do not be ashamed to confess it. To confess you were wrong yesterday is only to acknowledge that you are a little wiser today. And instead of being a reflection of yourself, it is an honor to your judgment and shows that you are improving in the knowledge of the truth. Do not be ashamed to learn and to cast aside your old doctrine and views, but take up that which you may more plainly see to be in the Word of God. But if you do not see it to be here in the Bible, whatever I may say or whatever authorities I may plead, I beseech you as you love your souls, reject it. And if from this pulpit you ever hear things contrary to this sacred word, remember that the Bible must be first and God's minister must lie underneath it. We do not stand on the Bible to preach, but we preach with the Bible above our heads. After all we have preached, we are well aware that the mountain of truth is higher than our eyes can discern. Clouds and darkness are round its summit, and we cannot discern its topmost pinnacle, yet we will try to preach it as well as we can. But since we are mortal and liable to err, exercise your judgment. Try the spirits whether they are of God. And if, on mature reflection on your bended knees, if you are led to disregard these difficult doctrines, then forsake it. Do not hear it preached, but believe and confess whatever you see to be God's word. I can say no more than that by way of exhortation. Whatever you hear from me or Mark or for anyone who takes this pulpit... We do not stand on the Bible to preach. We preach with the Bible above our heads. And we do our best to submit ourselves to the entire counsel of God because this is our authority. And let the church, the community around you, and let the Spirit of God who penned these words be your interpreter and guide you into all truth.